Merry Christmas, glad to see you. Happy you're here. Welcome, everybody. My name's Mark. I'm one of the assisting pastors here at Calvary Chapel Modesto, and it's my pleasure to share the word with each and every one of you tonight. We'll continue this uh, study that I've been working away on in Joseph. So if you have a Bible, please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. And if you need a Bible, we have Bibles that we can get into your hands. And if you don't own one, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. So Genesis chapter 42, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 24 in the life of Joseph. The title of this study is called Joseph, Shadows of Jesus, Study 7, The Veiled Savior and the Test. So this is all about whenever Joseph gets to run into his brothers. What an exciting moment. We'll read the first five verses, and then we'll pray, and we'll dive into God's amazing word. Let's read together. Genesis 42, verses 1 through 5. When Jacob, that's Joseph's dad, saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity, quote-unquote, befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan up north. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that tonight you would teach us, Lord, by the power and the strength of your Holy Spirit, what we need to know, Lord. We do not know so much, Lord, about life and you and the world and the way you want us to conduct ourselves, but your word will teach us everything we need, and so we pray for that tonight. We pray that you'd reveal your truth to us tonight from your word, that, Lord, tonight you would reveal your son Jesus through the scriptures because we know from your word, Lord, that the entire book is written about Jesus. And so change our lives tonight, Lord, from the inside out. We pray that we would leave this place looking, acting, and thinking more like Jesus than ever before from studying your word in your presence at your feet. Thank you for being our teacher tonight. Thank you for being the one who will show us your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take a seat. For those of you who are not familiar with uh, Joseph's story, I'll just do a quick recap and then we'll dive right in. Joseph was the favored son of Jacob. Jacob was a man that was given a promise by God that his family would have the savior of the world come through his line and his family. And Jacob, they, they had a family that put the, uh, the fun and dysfunctional. That's for sure, let me tell you. Because whenever you have, and I don't recommend it, this is not, this is not prescriptive, this is descriptive. Whenever you have four wives, 12 sons and a few daughters, you're in for a very big problem all the time. And you're in for more trouble whenever you have a favorite son out of those 12. And he's one of the youngest. That puts the, the target and the crosshairs right on Joseph. And Joseph was bullied by his brothers. He was finally found alone. And he was dad's favorite. So what do they do? Let's get rid of this kid. Because Joseph had something amazing happen. God spoke to Joseph in two different dreams and showed Joseph that his whole family would actually bow down to him. Now, of course, everyone takes offense to that. Who wants to bow down to the younger, snot-nosed little brother? Not me, not anybody. So these are grown men hearing from a teenager or a little kid. You guys are all gonna bow down to me. He's excited. He doesn't realize how dangerous this is. They get him alone. 
They see him and say, let's get rid of this dreamer. We'll ensure that none of the dreams, none of the prophecies, nothing comes true. They take him, throw him in a well, decide to kill him. One brother talks him out of it. They sell him into slavery. Joseph goes through a horrible set of circumstances, sold into slavery in a foreign country in Egypt for multiple years, is raised up by God in Potiphar's house as he's over the estate, only to be thrown in prison, even worse, because he's falsely accused of attempted rape when he didn't do anything but stand for God, and he was holy. So now he's in jail, and what happens? He has an opportunity to interpret two different dreams. God's given him a supernatural gift. He interprets the two dreams from the butler and the baker of Pharaoh. Pharaoh hears about this when he has two dreams later on, has Joseph interpret those dreams for him and raises him up from pit to palace in 24 hours, just like that. God takes Joseph from being in prison and making him the second most powerful man in the known world. He has everything at his fingertips. God did it. And that's where we're at now. And his dream that he um, went ahead and interpreted for Pharaoh was all about the famine that was coming. They were going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And that's where we find them right now. They're in year one of a seven-year famine, and his family's oblivious. So let's dig in. Verse one. That's where we're at. Here we go. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, indeed, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy us some there that we may live and not die. This is the very first year of seven. They have no idea it's coming. They have no idea what's ahead of them. All they know is they have lots of money from the previous seven years of plenty, and now they are going to go down and buy some grain in Egypt. But Jacob says something very disturbing to the brothers What does he say? The word that they don't want to hear. The word is a place where they sent their brother. What is it? Egypt. Egypt. It's a frightening thought because it reminds them of all of their past sins, all of their past failures, and all of their rebellion against God. And Egypt is actually something that we can all connect with because all of us, to a certain extent, have an Egypt or two, or three, or 15, or 20 in our pasts. It's the things that if we have not come to God with and talked to God about, whenever that thing, that person, that place, that situation is brought up, oh man, it sends shivers down your spine, makes you really uncomfortable, and you don't want to talk about it. It breaks you out into cold sweats. We have the blessing of being forgiven from our sins and failures if we repent, so we don't have to worry about our Egypts. But guess what? Joseph's brothers, have they ever repented? Have they ever come clean? No, it's been a cover-up for over 20 years, and suddenly, they're having to go to the place where their father mentions Egypt. What a frightening scene, and now they start making their way to it. Verse three, so Joseph's 10 brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. Jacob is the overprotective parent. No doubt, after the disappearance of Joseph, mysteriously, he has always considered it dangerous to have his boys, anyone that's left around those brothers. So 
Benjamin has been probably the boy in the plastic bubble. I imagine Jacob tying him to a leash. You know those leashes that parents uh, tie their overactive uh, children to and wander the streets and the, and the, well, the streets too, but the aisles of Walmart. You've seen it where they have a lead on a kid and he's just pulling and running everywhere but not allowed to get outside of his dad's uh, uh, sight. That's how I imagine Benjamin is. I can't, I can't uh, imagine the tent not having bunk beds where um, Benjamin and dad just sleep just one on top of the other there. Just, I'm gonna keep an eye on you and I imagine that Benjamin has been homeschooled. Oh yeah, I said it, your entire life. Good luck, Benjamin. You're here till death do us part. You're not going anywhere. So I feel you homeschoolers, wherever you are. I love you, you're fantastic. So he has been under the careful eye of his dad and he's not letting him go anywhere. So is Benjamin going anywhere near Egypt? Never. Verse five, and the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Verse six, now Joseph was governor over the land and it was he who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Now, Joseph is the second most powerful man in all the world right now. You've got to ask yourself, what in the world is he doing on the granary selling floor? What is he doing there? It'd be like Elon Musk going and helping the guys that are assembling Teslas, just going down and just helping out in the, in the Tesla line, or somebody who owns you know, Walmart coming down and just working a, working a cash, cash register. What is he doing there? You know what he's doing there? He's looking for his brothers. He is looking for those brothers because he knows the famine has hit everywhere and it's up north, it's everywhere. So he's looking for those brothers and sure enough, there they are. I love this section of scriptures because God's prophetic dream comes true. Right before his eyes, he sees the brothers, he recognizes them, they don't recognize him and what do they do? They bow down before him just like God told him they would. You see, the brothers are now before Joseph and bowing down to him. The dream is partially fulfilled, but Joseph's brothers, they veil him. They're closed off to seeing him. They're not interested in seeing him because they never really embraced God's promises. And we veil, and what I mean when I say veil, because people don't use veils anymore here in the United States hardly, but when we veil something, it means we close it off. We pull the curtain. We ignore it. We disregard it. We veil the Savior Jesus when we act as though God's promises won't come true and that his prophetic word will not come to pass. This moment reveals the sovereignty of God. The ironic thing is that the brothers' actions meant to stop them from ever bowing down to Joseph and to get Joseph out of their hair actually kick-started and threw everything into motion that would happen. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't God amazing? that no matter what someone tries to do when they stand against God, nothing they do gets in the way. In fact, God takes it and he flips it and he uses it for his good and his will. That's something we can really praise God for tonight. The fact that God is sovereign. It's a beautiful, wonderful attribute of God. You see, by sending Joseph to Egypt, they thought that they were ensuring they would never bow down. But here they are, right where God wants them. You see, when I say the word sovereign, it means this. God gets his way. God overrules, and he rules over 
all the plans and the schemes of men because all of us have our little plans and our little dreams and our five-year plan and our 10-year plan. That, that's great, you can have those things. I'm all for planning, the Bible talks about planning. But never get in the way of God's plans. Proverbs 16, nine says this, a man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Fear not, dear Christian. If you face a mob or a person or a group or a city or a world that's pushing back against the plans of God or the plans and the promises that God has given you in your life, you don't need to fear. You can know that God will have his way and no one and nothing stands in his way whenever he wants something done. I love that about God, don't you? I think that's something to worship him for. Isaiah 55, 11 proves it. God's word says this, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty or void, but will accomplish what I desire to achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Are there any areas in our lives that we're acting like God's promises aren't gonna come true or aren't going to happen? They will have faith in God. Are there any areas of our life like Joseph's brothers for us? Are you like Joseph's brothers tonight, perhaps standing in the way of something that God has planned? Don't bother, you're going to fail. Get out of his way, he's sovereign. This is a wonderful moment because the brothers are now bowing down and all of a sudden, this Lord of the Egyptians that's surrounded, no doubt, by guards and, and secret service of his day and servants is now yelling at them in Egyptian and I love it. He's speaking to them, we'll find out later, through an interpreter. He can speak Hebrew. He understands them perfectly but he decides to speak in Egyptian. That way they don't know that he understands them completely. I love this moment. Have you ever been overseas? Have you ever been to a foreign land? Have you ever been in a place where you don't speak the language? What do you do? How do you feel? You feel a little sheepish. You're a fish out of water. You feel a little helpless, a little vulnerable, and a little dumb. You really do. And so these brothers are here, and all they know is they're bowing down to show some respects. They're just here to get some grub and then get out of there. And suddenly, this guy starts yelling at them in Egyptian. And he's obviously the boss. He looks like it. That's a frightening moment, and it's just a great moment, I love it. Verse eight, here it goes. So Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dream which he had dreamed about them, and said to them, you are spies, of course, in Egyptian. Galahida, I'm just kidding, I made that up. If you're Egyptian, I apologize, I did not mean to offend you, I love you, and I just wanted to make a point. So everybody went, he speaks Egyptian, we. Yes, I do. No, I'm just kidding. That's French. So here we go. You're spies. You've come here to see the nakedness, the weakness of the land. Verse 10. And they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. <laughs> your servants are not spies. But he said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness and the weakness of the land. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. He's an Egyptian lord now, he's shaven, he's in rich royal regalia and robes, he has a white robe on no doubt, gold accents everywhere, big headdress, some cool eyeliner like the Egyptians wear, maybe a cat in his hand, welcome to Egypt. Yes, get the meow, no, and he's, he looks like Mr. T, he's got gold bling, Google it if you're young, you're like, who's Mr. T? <laughs> Sorry, old reference, but he still works here because I'm thinking Joseph is just blinged out. He's got a gold grill. He's looking awesome. He just looks like a million bucks, all tan, shaven, looks fantastic. But here he is. He's unrecognized by him, by, the, by his brothers. But this study reminds me so much of Jesus because you know what? Jesus, like Joseph, 
he was totally unrecognizable to all of his people. How do I know that? The scriptures tell us. We know that. He was right before their eyes. He fulfilled every scripture. They're fulfilling the prophecy before his eyes that God told them they would do before their brother. They don't see him. They're blind to it. Why? They don't recognize him. Just think about it. His own people, Jesus' own people, the Jews, didn't recognize him. In John 1.11, Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. The Jews did not receive Jesus. The religious leaders didn't receive Jesus. The people who knew the scriptures, they memorized the scriptures. They had all of these prophecies memorized. They knew who to look for. They knew Jesus was fulfilling it. They didn't recognize him. Mark 14, 61 says the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ? It doesn't get more easy than this. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said to him, what? I am. And the high priest ripped his clothes and said, you're blaspheming God. How dare you? The religious Jews didn't see him. The religious leaders didn't see him. And this is the worst part. Jesus' own family did not recognize him. It says so right there in John 7, 5. Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him till after he had resurrected. And Joseph, like Jesus, was unrecognized as his brother, by his brothers. The Jews didn't recognize their Savior even when he's right in front of their eyes. And Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him even though he was standing and they were bowing before him. Joseph brands them spies, but why does he do this? He can't start asking questions that would give him away. How's dad? I mean Jacob. I mean your father. No, you can't do that. How's Benjamin? I mean your little brother. I mean uh, my little brother. Oh, never mind. No, he can't do any of that. He just says, you're spies. Why? Because whenever you're accused of something, what do you have to do? You have to explain yourself. And so he says, you're spies to get them talking. And then they reveal and they volunteer all this information. No, no, we're 12 brothers. One's uh, back at home and my dad's here and we're the... So it's great. He gets all the information that now he can use to start working his magic. It's wonderful. He finds out his dad's still alive. Benjamin is still alive. He also begins something that he's doing here isn't just to find information. Joseph is so wise and filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins a restoration process to lead these brothers to repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know your first step in a restored relationship with Jesus? It's really a repentant heart. Why is repentance so important? It's revealed that it's important in the scriptures. The first word recorded by John the Baptist in Matthew 3.2, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is first recorded um, preaching that he gives. The first word out of his mouth is what? Repent. Whenever Peter speaks to the Jews, most of them were there in the crowd saying, crucify him to Jesus. Whenever they find out who Jesus really was, they're convicted. They're hit right in their heart. And they say, what must we do? He says, repent. It's the first step. And Joseph has to get him there. But repentance is so important. You might sit here and think, that's great. What's repentance, Pastor Mark? I'm glad you asked. Repentance is sincere regret. It's simply going in one direction towards your sin. All the things that we do, you and I do, we think, we say that goes against God's word, the Bible, goes against God's heart. When we break God's laws, that's sin. And we're all sinners. So we're all moving in a certain direction from birth towards sin and destruction and death and hell. And repentance is simply this. It's not just turning. I hear that all the time. It's just turning. It's not turning. 
Because lots of people turn from their sins, and what do they do? They just turn to another sin, or another thing, or another um, activity, or another hobby, or another, you could, oh, I stopped drinking, and now I work out, or I stopped this, and now I do this, and now, no. Repentance is turning away from your sin and turning to someone. Who's that person? God. God. It's turning to God. That's repentance. So if someone ever asks you, what's repentance? It's turning from your sin, turning to God. That's repentance, and that's what Joseph wants for his brothers. Joseph is led by the Spirit to do this, and he wants them to repent. But before you can repent of your sins, you first have to identify them, and they have hidden their sins for years. These brothers are really good at hiding their sins, much like most of us are. I don't know about you, but before I was a Christian, I was really good at hiding things. Sometimes I thought I was good, and I was not. Did you eat any cookies, Mark? Nope. And then there they are all over your face as a little kid. Did you get into the glue and the glitter? Nope, it's all over my hands. Whatever it is, you know. did you do this? Nope, yeah, no, no, I didn't, no. Did you play with the paint? No, it's all over my clothes. We're terrible at it. We hide things that are obvious, and God wants to help identify what stinks in your life so he can help you turn from it. It reminds me of my friend Kenny. I love my friend Kenny. He makes me laugh a lot. He told me a story once that was, uh, fun and horrifying all at once. So here's the story. He was saying goodbye to a friend from work and as he was in his car, he saw this nice girl that he kind of thought was cute and nice and just wanted to say goodbye. So he rolled down the window and said, bye, have a good night. She started walking up to the car to say goodbye and she's 10 feet away and she stops as if she's hit with pepper spray. Her eyes started to water. She went, whoa, what is that smell? It's terrible. Something's died in your car. Something's horrible. And he's freaking out. Because what you don't know that Kenny does know but he doesn't share with hardly anyone so we'll have to keep it between us. Here we go. Is he had a lot of surgeries as a young man and one of the surgeries they had to cut through the olfactory senses. Kenny can't smell anything. And so he's freaking out because he's thinking I've embarrassed myself. You just want to die at that point if you like a girl and then you're the guy with the smelly car. That's a nightmare. And so he's realizing something's wrong, so he does what any guy would do in this situation. I don't recommend it, but you make up a story. And so he said, oh yeah, well, you know, I, on Friday night, I had some friends at a football game and they were in the back and I probably just need to get it detailed. I gotta go. He rolls up the window, goes home, starts rifling through the car and he's ripping through everything thinking, what could it be? What could it be? What could it be? And he was reaching under the seats and everything and all of a sudden, oh, there it is. And he pulls it out and lo and behold, it's a styrofoam to-go box from Lion's Restaurant. Did I mention that it was June in the valley? These leftovers had been there over a week, baking 350 to 450 every day in his car for a week. And he said, Mark, I'm no surgeon. He said, but even if I was a surgeon, once I opened it and looked, the green, fuzzy, wet mess that was my leftovers, he said, I don't think a surgeon could have held down his cookies. It was rough. It stank, he couldn't tell. He had to have someone else tell him to identify what stinks so he could remove it. God wants to do that in your life. You get so comfortable and so used to your sin, you and I don't even smell it. We don't even realize it. It stinks and God wants to remove it and God wants to do that with Joseph's brothers, he wants to do it with us and Kenny, thank God, did it and then he burned the car and that's what he did. There you go. Anyway, that's the end of the sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, Joseph's, he's harsh only to begin the restoration process to his brothers. This isn't revenge. It's actually God doing something good to heal Joseph's brothers. 
Joseph isn't taking it on on his brothers. And you might think, well, how do you know that? You're making that up, Pastor Mark. Why isn't it revenge? Who wouldn't like a little revenge after them throwing him down a well, almost breaking bones, throwing him into slavery for most of his young life? Who wouldn't want a little revenge? He doesn't. How do I know this? Because in chapter 41, I want to encourage you to read it on your own. God does a mighty work in Joseph's life of healing through two wonderful human beings. He has two sons at the beginning of the famine, before the famine starts, I should say. In the time of plenty, he has two sons, and he has one that's named Manasseh. And God did such a powerful work in Joseph's life that he named one Manasseh. What does Manasseh mean? Every time he called out the name Manasseh, the name means this, God has helped me forget and made me forget all my toil and all my suffering in my father's house. How beautiful is that? Because how many times do you call your children's names? Manasseh, Manasseh, get down from there. Manasseh, don't touch that. Manasseh, let go of your brother's neck. Get down from there right now. Get off that camel. Get off that tree. He's calling Manasseh all the time. And Manasseh, every time he speaks it, it's a reminder of the work that God's already done of healing in his life. And if that's not enough to help you forget, because that's what the Holy Spirit does when he comes into your life, and he can help you forgive the unforgivable and like the unlikable, not to be best friends with them, but to forgive. God does a greater work, and Joseph has a second son, and what's his name? You Bible scholars. Ephraim, I heard it. Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What does that mean? It means that God has made him produce great, wonderful things in the land in a place where he's afflicted and hurt and harmed, and now God has made him fruitful. And so every time he's calling these kids, every time he picks them up and kisses them and hugs them and holds them, his hands are so full with love and joy and goodness that God has created in his life that there is no room for bitterness. There is no room for hatred. There is no room for revenge. So I do believe from the scriptures that God has already done a healing work and Joseph's working towards their good. Verse 13, and they said, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. In fact, the youngest is with our father today and one is no more. One is no more? Oh, can't you see Joseph at that moment? If they were, had a painting of this, that it would just slowly, his eyebrow would raise. One is no more. It is I, Joseph, I would punish you. No, he's been healed, so he's not gonna do it. Shame on you for thinking it. So here we go. One, more, one is no more. Joseph lets it go. How will Joseph get these lying, cheating, manipulative, terrible, murderous, self-centered, unrepentant brothers to see their sin and repent? Well, God's gonna help him. Joseph designs a test that will bring his brothers to repentance and bring his beloved brother, Benjamin, back to him. Joseph knows that the dreams must be fulfilled, but he knows this, they're not fulfilled yet because he only has 10 of his brothers. And what were the dreams? All the brothers. And not just the brothers, but then the second dream also brought in who? Mom and dad. So Joseph knows that the whole family needs to be under his care. And he has to make sure that happens. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God's gonna use him to do that. So here he starts. He starts to draw the family to him one step at a time over the next few chapters. Verse 14, but Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you, saying, you are spies. In this manner you shall be tested, and this is the test. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested and you can see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And so he put them all together in the prison for three days. 
Silence and solitude is very powerful and God wants to use it in our lives to make sure that he can clean us up so we don't have to come to this terrible conclusion. Silence and solitude is good because God wants to slowly clean you up day by day instead of letting something fester like that disgusting leftovers in Kinney's car or for 20 years of running from your Egypts. God wants to do this by having you come to meet him quietly, privately, in the privacy of your own heart daily and just ask him for a few moments, Lord, search my heart. How do I know how to do this? The scriptures, Psalm 139, 23 through 24, it says this, Psalm 139, David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That's what the psalmist says. Search me, O God, and test me. That's an invitation from you. God's a gentleman. He's not gonna barge in. If you're keeping him out, he's not gonna force his way into your life. You have to open up the door to him. And so you open up the door and you say, search me, check it out. And it doesn't take long to sit there whenever you're sitting with God either at home, at a park, in your car, wherever it is, ask him quietly, search me, God. You know what God wants to change in your life. You need to ask him for the power to do it. And so, we've partnered with Modesto PD and each of you get to spend three days in jail this week. (laughs) Pastor Mike, bring in the cuffs. No, just kidding. And all of you at home, wherever you are, we've partnered with your uh, local police department. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's what we do. And so, you know, some of you, your wives laughed really hard at that. And so I'll talk to them later. No, I'm just kidding. But it's good to have silence and solitude. You see, we veil the Savior when we do not repent of our sins. And there are a lot of sins that we need to repent of. Joseph is really just creating, though, a reality of what they've already been living in for over 20 years. These brothers have already been living in what of their own making? A prison. They've already been living there. And sadly, there's a lot of Christians who live there in prisons of their own making because they hold on and harbor their sins and they hide and they obfuscate and they put up smoke screens and they try to act like things aren't there that God wants to move. These men have been in a prison of their own lies, deception, and rebellion for years. And God wants Joseph to be used, not to be just harsh to them, but their good plans to help them see their sin. You see, we do connect our trials to our sins at times, don't we? God doesn't punish us, so if you're sick tonight, God isn't punishing you, I'm not saying that. Whenever there's something that goes wrong, it's not necessarily God punishing you. That's not what the Bible teaches. But I find it very interesting that we, whenever something bad happens, what do we do? Like that, you know what you do. You connect it to whatever bad thing you've just done or something you remember that you think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, the, Luke, the, the, the roof is leaking. Oh, I shouldn't have talked to that person in Walmart like that. Oh, I shouldn't have cut that person off. Now my tire's flat. Oh, I knew I shouldn't have done that. Now look what happened. God's not punishing you, but I find it very interesting that our own minds condemn us and remind us of the things that we do need to turn away from. And it's a condition of humanity that's been around since the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 17, verse 18, the widow of Zarephath, when her son dies, she actually yells at the prophet Elijah. And she says, have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance? It's very fascinating that we do this. And so many of our trials are just the results of living in a fallen world, but sometimes when we're put in a sticky situation, it's not always bad to also let God remind us of things that we might need to bring up to him and talk to him about. Not a bad idea. Verse 18, then Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, (laughs) let one of your brothers be confined to the prison house, 
but you go and carry grain from the famine to your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die in you. And they did so. Now, verse 21 Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother for we saw the anguish of his soul and he pleaded with us. They're thinking of Joseph now. And we would not hear, therefore his distress has come upon us. If you're a student of the Bible, and I hope you are, if you're a a student of the Bible and you like to study the Bible, go ahead and underline the words us, we, us, we. They've been in that cell for three days and brothers fight, brothers yell, brothers argue and you know what's happened over the three days. They're all starting to turn on one another but they're all finally realizing that all their sin and all their wickedness from the past has caught up to them and all of them are admitting to it. All of them finally have the silence and solitude and the clarity to see what they've done. Verse 22, and Reuben answered them saying, did I not speak to you saying, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. Therefore behold, he says something powerful here. Look at these words. His blood is now required of us. After Joseph's brothers are finally there, they have to face the reality and they need to admit their sin. Admitting our sin is always the very first step in the restoration process. We admit it, we recognize it, and we turn away from it. So that's part of the repentance, is just to admit it and recognize it. Romans 3.23, though, gives us this encouragement that all of us are sinners, so we don't have anything to hide. We can just tell God, yes, I'm a sinner. Verse, um, Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are imperfect. All of us have been less than perfect. We all need a savior. So it's good to admit our sins. There are a few more steps before the veiled savior Joseph can really reveal himself. They still aren't ready. Joseph can't reveal himself yet, but he will. Joseph hears for the first time that his brothers admit their sin and they recount their cruelty, their evil, their torment of Joseph into slavery. The word we is very important because like I said, they all take responsibility. Sometimes difficult situations need to hit and impact our lives for us to hear God's voice or for us to look at our lives and let him assess it. Sometimes we're a little hard-headed. But this is interesting because what they say is very powerful. Powerful Powerful words come from Reuben. His blood is now required of us. That's so abstract. That's so weird. Why would someone's blood be required of them? How would they ever put a sin against a brother over 20 plus years ago and his blood being spilled to them suddenly being required? I mean, who's ever heard of blood crying out for justice and asking God to do something about it? You know, what two brothers from the Old Testament that they're thinking, I'm convinced they're thinking of this. They're finally realizing God has seen because who am I thinking of? Who are the two brothers, the first two brothers in history? Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, that's right. Cain and Abel, that's where we realize that there is justice and there is a God in heaven who sees because what does God say to Cain about Abel? He spills his brother's blood, he murders him in a field, he murders his brother Abel and Cain is facing God and God says, your brother's blood cries out from the earth to me. And I'm convinced that Reuben is suddenly for the first time thinking biblically and he's speaking a truth to all his brothers and they're all waking up to Cain and Abel. God's holding us accountable for this. There is a God in heaven and we're in trouble. But they lived as if God doesn't see or hear or witness or hold them accountable for any of their actions. It reminds me of the Jews when they cried out when they wanted to crucify Jesus. What did they say? Let his blood be upon us and all of our children. What a terrible thing to say. But I wanna tell you this. 
Because as I look at this, I can't help but contrast Jesus' blood with Joseph's blood. Because Joseph, like Jesus, was very much alive. He wasn't dead. And he was actually a gracious, loving Savior that was working towards fixing their lives and saving their lives, much like Jesus is for each and every one of us. And this is the beauty of it as you contrast, this, contrast these two. The blood of Christ responds differently to you and I, even though our sin spilled his blood. Jesus' blood does not cry out against us, but he cries out for every man, woman, and child to be saved by him and through his shed blood, not to be held accountable, but to be saved by his blood. Jesus' blood was never shed to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that's the difference between the two. You see, we're born separated from God at birth from our sin, but Jesus is the truer and better Abel, and he's the truer and the better Joseph, because Jesus' blood doesn't cry out for justice. He cries out in mercy, and his blood cries out grace, and his blood cries out forgive them, and his blood cries out that he loves you. That's what his blood cries out to you and to me every day, every day. How do I know this? 1 John 1.7b says, and the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus' blood doesn't cry out for justice, but that grace, forgiveness, and mercy. And his blood pays for all of our sins instead of requiring us to pay for it. We must cry out to God, though, and his blood saves us. Romans 10.13 says this, all who call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. So you might be sitting here under a lot of guilt and a lot of condemnation and a history that you're afraid of. And Jesus wants you to know tonight, dear people, that Jesus' blood cries out louder and over all your sin. His blood cries out louder and greater than all your selfishness. His blood cries out louder and greater than all of your lust. His blood cries out louder and greater than all of your lies. His blood cries out louder and greater than everything you've ever done and the whole world put together because he loves you and he wants to save you tonight. His blood is powerful and we want his blood to cover our sins because we certainly can't do it ourselves. Verse 23, but they did not know that Joseph understood them for he spoke to them through an interpreter, but he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked to them and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. This is just Joseph. Is this just Joseph playing and toying with them? I don't think so. Because what do we see in this passage right here? He doesn't turn and laugh and chuckle or turn and then reveal himself and say, now you're stuck in here. I'm gonna keep you guys in here the rest of your lives. Good luck. Let's see how you like being treated like you treated me. He doesn't do that. What does he do? It says it right there in the passage. He turns when he hears them and it breaks his heart and he weeps for them and he loves them. He weeps when he hears the brothers admit their wrong and see their sin against him for what it really was. Joseph doesn't weep for himself alone though. I believe that he also weeps because of the condition of his brothers. This is the family that God has promised to send the savior of the world through, to save the entire world from the broken, ruined condition we're in of sin, and they are far from God. 
This is the family that carries the name of God, that, that operates under the covenant of God, and he sees them and sees how far they are from God, and I do believe it breaks his heart. This family needs help, and Joseph is directed by the Holy Spirit to bring them back into a right relationship with him and God. Now, no one's excited about the new conditions that Joseph just put on them. I'll tell you what, boys. One of you stays in prison. The rest of you guys skedaddle. I'll send you off with some grain. You just have one simple task. Go get your brother and bring him on back. Benjamin, the youngest. That'll be easy. I can't wait for you to go and tell dad to come on down. Can you imagine all 10 of them coming before dad, minus one, all nine of them? Simeon's in the back there in Egypt, locked up. Can you imagine? Do you think any of them are excited about this? Because before Simeon's chosen, guess who doesn't want to stay in Egypt? Any of them. Because whoever's staying in Egypt, do you think that bubble boy, Benjamin, homeschooled Benjamin, Benjamin who's been, who hasn't left the sight of his father for over 23 years, do you think that Jacob's going to send him down to Egypt to a ruler who's unpredictable, precocious, a little crazy, and a little, uh, you know, scared of, of anything and everything that comes into his presence and throws people in jail, do you think he's going to be excited about that? Not at all. So whoever's staying in Egypt, guess what? They're probably thinking, bye guys, <laughs> see you again, never. <laughs> Tell my family I love them, because there's no way Benjamin's coming back. But this is just one of the other situations that Joseph is creating. And a very wise commentator said this, Joseph is really recreating the exact same scenario that his brothers put him through. Don't you see it? Falsely accused, oh, here comes that dreamer. Let's get rid of him. Thrown into a pit, he threw him into jail. Kept in Egypt, sent to Egypt. He's creating the exact same situation. And he's also keeping one brother in Egypt to see if all these other brothers will for the first time, will they come back for one brother, yes or no? Have they changed? Has God changed him to be continued? Now, as we apply these scriptures, as we look at it, let's look at a few simple things to look at our lives. What does this passage reveal to us? How can God change our lives through this passage? First, are you like Joseph tonight? Are you in need of God to do a supernatural work of healing in your life? To forgive those who have sinned against you? Do you need God to do a work to help you forget all the toil of your past? Maybe even your father's house or your mother's house, wherever you were mistreated. Do you need God to do that work and become a Manasseh to you? Do you need God to do that? God can do that. God will do that. I've seen him do it in my own life. He'll do it and he'll do it better than you ever imagined. And you do not need to. You know, you know how wonderful it is that God doesn't require the person that sinned against you? How mean would that be from God if he said, you know, to get real forgiveness and real closure and real healing, you have to get that person who sinned against you to come to you and see their sin and then say they're sorry and work through it for eight to 12 weeks. Do you? No, God doesn't do that. God doesn't need the other person, whoever that person is that sinned against you, to heal you. You just need to get face to face with who? with your loving Heavenly Father, with your wonderful Jesus who shed his blood for you and he will become and he will create a Manasseh in your life and he'll birth healing in your life. And then on top of that, he's wanting to also make you fruitful in the land of your affliction. So maybe you're still in a trial and you're still in a difficult situation. God is so good and so powerful, he will make you fruitful for his glory in the situation you're in, true story. 
Maybe that's you tonight, and God wants you to know that. Or are you living in a prison of your own making, of your own design? Oh, you're not in any cell, and you're not behind any bars, and you don't have to be told when to wake up and when to go to chow. But you are in a cell because of your own addictions and your own sins and your own rebellion. You need to get right with God tonight. God wants you to get right with him. Take the time to take that solitude and that silence with God and let him fix you. The only way through is through the son. The only way Simeon's getting out of that prison is through a son named Benjamin, but for you, it's not Benjamin I'm talking about. The only way out for you is through the son, Jesus Christ. He is the key to get you out, and he loves nothing more than to set the captives free. That's what he loves to do. That's what he is empowered to do. That's his joy to do. So let him do that tonight. Repent of your sin. Stop acting like it doesn't stink. Everybody else smells it but you. Or finally, if you're not a Christian tonight and you're separated from God, then the wrath of God abides upon you tonight. I don't say it with joy, but it's true. The wrath of God abided upon me. Abides means it's right on top of us, ready to fall any given second. But you know what? You have one of two choices. You either live your life denying Jesus and kicking against him your whole life and fighting him and marching over the cross of Calvary and saying, I don't want anything to do with you and have the wrath of God visit you on the other end of eternity and it lasts for eternity and it's real and you don't want to be there. Or door number two, you can just cry out to Jesus like I said before, his blood will wash you of all your sin and then you're free and you get to live outside of God's wrath because you know what? Jesus took all the wrath that you and I deserve on that cross. That's why he shed his blood. It was for you. It was to save you personally. He loves you and he wants you to come to him tonight and it's really simple. It's ABC simple. Admit you're a sinner, believe in Jesus as your savior and confess him as your Lord and Savior and just, just, just enjoy it. Receive him. Receive him tonight. There'll be men and women up here in front after the service. They will pray with you and for you. They would love to pray with you and for you to receive Jesus or pray with you and for you about anything. Come and receive prayer. We love to pray with you. We love to serve you. That's our joy. Let's pray now and close. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of the scriptures that change our hearts and teach us everything we need. Lord, thank you for being a God who didn't hold us accountable for all that we've done, Lord, and all that we've said, but you've actually taken it upon your son, Jesus, Father, to pay for all of our sins. Thank you for making a way where there was no way. We pray for all those, Lord, who are in their own cells, Lord, of their own design. They're trapped and powerless because they don't have you. Lord, that's why they're trapped. That's why they're in the cell. They haven't had you empower them to pull them from death to life and to give them a supernatural power over the sin, Lord, to help them fall in love with you and walk with you. Lord, I pray that you do a mighty work of salvation tonight and, and also a work of freedom for all the men and women in this room and that are listening online. And we pray that you bless them in Jesus' name, amen.